We're going to take a look uh, at Ezekiel 18 tonight. Ezekiel 18. You can turn there, but uh, just hold hold your place because I, I want to set it up um, before we get into the study tonight. I want to set it up for you a little bit. <clears throat> so I'm going to ask some questions. I'm, I'm going to ask that we, we interact with one another. Um, and when I ask the questions uh, at a certain port, part, I mean, oftentimes I ask rhetorical questions. But tonight, um, at a, in a, during a part of the message, I'm going to ask you to respond. And, um, and I'll let you know that this is the responding time, so you don't get stuck in a rhetorical question looking silly. Um, and and it's, it's going to be one of these things where we're going to be stretched tonight. I pray we are stretched. Um, it's, it's been an interesting week. Uh, Tuesday, we met out at St. Paul's Baptist Church, uh, largest black church in Ventura County. And as you remember on Sunday, if you were here on Sunday, I, I asked the congregation to come and attend, and I had actually mis, misunderstood Bishop Huggins. He just wanted clergy and chaplains to come out. Yeah. So, so the word got out to a number of folks, and, and the Sunshiners and the like, they all backed off and, and understood that it was just for clergy, and I didn't have enough time to fix it. And we would have had three times as many people, but even with the concerted effort to try to have people not come we still had an enormous crowd there. there it, every seat was filled and there was standing room only. And it was a, it was a profound day. Um, and as we sat in the room, the majority of the folks, I would say all the folks from our congregation were white. Um, and, and many of them had never participated in anything like this, let alone go to an African-American church, a, a black church, um, and sit through a service. And then when I arrived there with uh, James Crawford, the two of us got there, we walked into Bishop Huggins' study. And, uh, you know, two white boys walk in, and, um, and we sit down, and Bishop Huggins and I are having some fun. James is not sure what to do with himself. I mean, he went to Boise State. He's, he, I, don't, I don't think he knew what to do with himself. But just across the table from James, and I don't know if you noticed this, James, was, was a, a black man wearing a um, uh, Black Lives Matter a Hands Up, Don't Shoot shirt which to, to many white folks, you look at that and it's offensive. Um, and and there, are, there are officers that when I spoke on Sunday, some of our, our police officers struggled over the message and, and understandably. Uh, these are folks that if you saw the shooting of the man in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and the shooting of the man in Mississippi that were filmed by bystanders, one was filmed by the girlfriend, uh, if you notice in both of the 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 films, if you saw those, and I, I don't recommend seeing them, they're graphic and they're painful. But in both shootings, you can hear the voice of the officer, and there's absolute fear. And in both the officers on the ground in in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the uh, Asian uh, officer uh, in the shooting of of the man in uh, Minnesota. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so both of them were unbelievable fear. Now, add to that, um, you're now an officer in Dallas, Texas, and uh, you know we 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 saw the the funeral service. Um, one sitting president, one previous president together, uh, attempt of a reconciliation service, injecting political uh, dialogue or, or political narrative, and and trying to sift through that. But, but everyone speaking of how the officers ran back to the line of fire to save people and pull them out. And everyone, for the most part that I saw, was in agreement that, that these were heroes. And, and yet, you go to work as a hero, but you don't know who's going to snipe you. And you're still scared, and you still have 
responsibilities placed upon you. Um, and it's almost like rules of engagement given to our military personnel. On Sunday, you're going to have a chance to hear from Lieutenant Commander uh, Samuel Blair, who is in the um, SEAL Team 5. And he's coming to share on Sunday, so is Teen Challenge. And Sam happens to be my, my nephew. Uh, and he's going to share some interesting aspects. But uh, here you have, both in the military and with the police, you have rules of engagement. And, and it, it hinders your job, uh, hinders your safety in many aspects. And, it's, and so you have officers that are in the field frightened. Um, and, and you have a public that is scrutinizing them. And really what we have is we're putting a burden on police officers, whether it be, um, you know, we have, we have psychological meltdown in our country, and so we, we place that burden on our officers that they're supposed to be, uh, you know, psych workers. Um, you, you have family dysfunction. Now they're supposed to be social service officers. And, and, and they're the front line and the first responders to a melting, uh, a, um, a community that's melting down across the country. So though they have great authority, they have great responsibility. And with that comes uh, an inten- intensely stressful job. Then you have tension and narrative throughout the country. And you, you have, um, you know, uh, an enormous amount of incarceration in the black community as per capita. And you look at that and, and you have a narrative. Um, you have a, a larger response towards the black community from police, more so than in the white community. And everyone has a narrative in relation to that. And as we were in this, this meeting on Tuesday, uh, we were all stretched quite a bit. Um, some things that were said caught me off guard. It was a little offensive, quite honestly. And, um, and it, the Bible says to a man's benefit to what? Overlook an offense. You have to choose to be offended. We're trying to get to the heart of the issue, so you're going to have to sift through. It's like communicating with somebody that's angry, and they're going to say things that are hurtful. But you have to get to the heart of the issue, so you're going to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And endeavoring means you have to work through this misery. You have to work through the insults. You have to work through whatever it is. And one of the comments I made to Bishop Huggins is that when he invited me as the only white man on the dais for his anniversary, uh, and the, the keynote speaker was Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright, and the man who introduced him as I'm sitting in the dais, the man who introduced him insulted me in every way, shape, and form um, by basically introducing Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright and listing all the things that are wrong in this country and, and labeled me in every category. And I was not offended. I wasn't. And I, I sat and listened to Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright. And, and how many people have heard Sean Hannity use his comment about not God bless America, but God damn America? You've all heard that. Has anyone ever listened to the sermon in context? And, and what was your take on it, Tony? And matter of fact, the only partially black man in the room. What was your take on it? It did. I listened to the entire sermon. But with that clip, what are you thinking if you've ever heard it? What an awful man. Hello? Stretch yourself a little bit. That's a question. Yes? Okay. So, so this is endeavoring. And, and there's tension in the country. There's a meltdown in the country. And we are... I mean, I've gone through this. We've gone through the $19 trillion of debt. We've, we've talked about, you know, the meltdown and the abortion rate and, and divorce rate and, uh, you know, the LGBT, transgender and all, everything. This is, there's not a blueprint of God on America right now. Churches are in a postmodern realm. Uh, churches are declining. I mean, we're watching all this, yes? What's the answer? And, and so 
before we get into the study, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. This is a book that was written by a man I greatly admire. Uh, and and I, when I first met him, I didn't like him. Let me correct that. I didn't like what he was saying. He was hard not to like. He was so tender. There was just this peaceful nature about him and the way he carried himself. There was nothing offensive in his nature. It was just his words that offended me. And, and as a young seminary student sitting through his class, I struggled with his comments. Uh, as, a, as a young white seminary student from Coronado, California, who didn't believe he had a racial bone in his body, I struggled. As a young evangelical fundamentalist, I struggled with what he said. Uh, there was a white man uh, in Fresno by the name of H. He just went by his first initial, and I don't even know what his name was. I think I, think I do, but I... I can't remember, H. Spees. And uh, he, he headed up Youth for Christ in Fresno, and uh, he created Serve Fresno in the inner city where we worked in the Lowell District because Fresno had the second highest murder rate, second highest car theft rate of any city in the U.S. And we figured if we'd start in the epicenter of poverty and build out, and we would, we would create inner city missionaries that would leave the, the gated communities of the northern regions of Fresno, and they would move into the inner city, which was blighted, and start missions on the inside of the city, we would transform the city. And, and that's where our youth group at the time went into the inner city, painted houses that were owned by slumlords, and you had um, all kinds of ethnicities in these, these slumlord houses. And we'd go in and fix them up. The slumlords loved it, but the tenants loved it even more. The paint was donated by a, a wealthy Fresno business owner who lived in the north in a gated community that committed to working in the inner city. And Fresno was blighted. It was an awful city. And by 1997, it became one of America's finest cities and had the highest crime rate drop of any city its size in FBI statistic history. That had an enormous influence on me. And it was all inspired by this man. His name's John Perkins. John Perkins uh, has taught at Wheaton College. He's taught at... Um, Liberty University. He's taught at a number of universities. He's, he's a pretty amazing man. He was born in 1930 in New Haven, Mississippi. And uh, his mother died when he was seven months old and his father abandoned the family. He was raised by his grandmother. What's that look like to you? I, I'd say that puts the fun in dysfunction, wouldn't you? Yeah? That's a dysfunctional family. Would you agree? And, and in the absence of a father, and I've, I've seen what the absence of a father does because as a minister, I, that father wound is unbearable. Uh, Tony, would you mind if I tagged on you again? Um, can you share the story of when, you, when your dad visited you and you, you were sick? Here, come here, please. Tell him about your father. It's a Bible study. Don't worry. I'm the oldest of 11 kids, um, two fathers. And um, my father uh, didn't really, I don't really know him too well, never knew him actually at all. My father decided uh, probably when I was about four to start using heroin. And in using heroin, um, he wasn't around. Can I, can I back up real quick? Yeah. Um, was your mother white or your father white? In which Mother. Mother was white, father was black. Yes. Okay. So I'm I'm just helping you with stereotypes in and our country. You can imagine that in 1952, when when I was born. You're that old? I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I got my Medicare letter. <laughs> so anyway, being being um, uh, born, uh, one one of the things that that not having a father around the house, a lot of things just changed. 
I was the only kid I knew in school, that, uh, at least my brothers and sisters, we were the only ones that didn't have a father at home. And so we lost a lot of opportunities as a result of that. But since he was using heroin, he was always in jail. I used to visit him uh, because he was a trustee, and he'd be chained to the uh, elevator, and he would be the operator of the elevator, and I'd be standing there with all the prisoners riding up and down the elevator. That's and how that's, he visited his dad. That's my dad. So that's how I knew him until he went to prison for a little while for doing something else. I don't really remember a lot of that stuff. But one day, um, he, he had gotten out of jail or prison for something. And I was sick at my aunt's house. I was kind of raised. The whole family kind of lived on the same street. So I lived uh, a lot of time when I was younger with my aunt, my sisters with my grandmother. So I'm at my aunt's house. I'm sick. I have 103 fever. My father is outside. My brother went out to see him. He wanted me to come outside because he wasn't allowed in the house because he had just stolen a safe and a bunch of gold, about um, something like 10 pounds worth of gold. He had stolen it from my uncle, so he wasn't allowed in the house anymore. So I'm sick. I can't come outside. But he's outside my window, and he decides to say, well, he's just a sissy. He won't come out and see me. And I remember that. He actually, didn't he use a different word? Yeah. He All right. Some other words, but I don't use those. Yeah. So, you know, basically, you know, at that point, I wrote him off. Uh, my father died when I was 17. And he died in a fire. He started in a bed while smoking a joint. Um, I remember when the police came and told me about it. I said, I don't believe it. Where did it happen? And they told me, so I drove my car down, and I insisted to go in the house. This is, this is what happens when you don't know somebody. I insisted to go into the house to see. I want to see the body. And they let me up, and I just stood there and looked. Are you sure that's him? And they said, yes, son, you don't need to be here. And I said, no, I do. I need to be sure. And I turned around, got in my car, went home, and went to sleep. And I actually, for the strangest thing, is I actually felt better. I was actually glad there were, weren't going to be any more phone calls. There weren't going to be anything. Uh, but I don't know what it's like to have a father at all. And sometimes I like to say, and I think it's for me, um, you can't miss what you never had. So I tried to make the best of it by trying to be better than what my, my father gave to me. Uh, How long have you been married? 33 years. How many kids do you have? Two. Amen. And, and they're, they're precious kids. And I, I met Tony through, thanks, Tony. I met Tony through Terry and Nancy Clark. And, and Pastor Tony was up in Grass Valley. And you want to talk about, I'm, I'm heading up to Grass Valley on Thursday. That's where my in-laws have a lake house. It's gated community, by the way. And, um, and, and, and Grass Valley, it's very racist, yeah? And the fact that he survived in Grass Valley is pretty remarkable. Uh, my point is this. Can anyone testify to that kind of a story? Some of you have heartache. But that's the exception, not the rule, Calvary Chapel, God speak. That is the rule, not the exception, at St. Paul's Baptist Church. You see the narrative? This is this the, the black culture is imploded. And and higher incarceration rates. And and we watch everybody arguing with one another as to what the issue is. And if I were to ask you tonight, what's the solution? 
A lot of us would go through all kinds of things. Well, we need school vouchers. And others would say, no, we need government funding and federal help. And we need more police officers. We need less police officers. We need, and we can go through it. And I can, I can get a thousand different uh, suggestions for what you think is the solution to the problem we have in America. The only problem is we haven't diagnosed the problem, only the symptom. Racism is not the problem. It's a symptom. Officer shootings is not the problem. It's a symptom. Shooting of, of black, young black men is not the, prob- it's not the problem. It's, it's the symptom. And so the Lord, when we begin, we go through those first portions of Ezekiel, and, and the depression comes in showing you what the problem is. And now we're coming to what the solution is. And we're going to begin with the solution tonight. Before I do that, let me just read a couple more things. I was sharing with you about John Perkins. Um, In 1947, he left Mendenhall, Mississippi for California because his brother, uh, Clyde, was shot by a police officer. And they feared for his life, so he ran to California. Uh, he was in California for 10 years, rose to a prominent position, had stock in a company. The, the stock split three times. He was raising his family. He was married to Vera May. She's a lovely lady. Uh, and it was, it, was, um, it was a pretty remarkable family in California where racism didn't exist like it did in the South. But in 1957, something happened to John Perkins that changed his entire world. I mean, it, 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 it shook it to the foundation. He came to know Christ. And he had to go back to Mississippi. And when he went back to Mississippi, his, his brother Clyde had been shot. Uh, Marie's husband, his sister's husband, had been shot. In 1971, after having returned to Mendenhall, Mississippi as a minister and starting Bible studies on the other side of the tracks... In uh, 1971, he was brutally beaten by police officers and left for dead. His son died. Bishop Huggins' son, as you know, was shot 13 times by Alameda police officers. And so we go through all this, and, and, and each of us, even in looking at, at Bishop Huggins, we can dismiss him. Well, I'm not sure how he operates his finances, and he's been married four times, and I, I you know, it's amazing how we fit our narrative, and they're our neighbors, but only as much as we'll tolerate. But here's the problem. The problem is getting so overwhelming by symptoms that unless we deal with the problem, the symptoms are going to come and they're going to affect us. And what happened is the problems become so manifested by symptoms that in these past couple weeks, it actually, the symptoms actually affected your world. And, you know, you, you start to see itching and scaling on your skin, and that, that's, that's a symptom of a problem. And w- it's affecting us. The symptoms are now manifesting in, in our world. They've been manifesting themselves in, in, in Bishop Huggins' world for a long time. Tony's world, a lot of symptoms. And so we look at this, and, and this is what rocked my world. And I remember opening the very first portion in the introduction to this book called With Justice for All. And I thought, wow, With Justice for All. Because I, I loved, I just finished my history degree, American history, so moved by it. And he starts with one of my favorite documents of all time, the Declaration of Independence, yes? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. 
dot, dot, dot. And he writes this. With these words, a declaration of independence of the United States of America holds out the noble promise of justice for all. Yet the very signing of this landmark of human freedom betrayed its own promise. I read that, I was angry. Oh, here we go. For among its signers stood men who at the very moment owned other men. Justice for all didn't really mean justice for all. It meant justice for some. The inalienable right of liberty belonged only to the privileged. Uh, Can I ask, would you please raise your hand if you were in a home with two parents that have never divorced or were raised in a home with two parents who never divorced? Do you know how rare that is at St. Paul's? you know how rare that is? Can you raise your hand if you've graduated high school or, or will more than likely graduate from high school? Raise your hand. You know how rare that is at St. Paul's? If you've gotten a college degree, two-year or four-year, raise your hand. Do you know how rare that is? Do you know how rare that is? They're not going to raise your hand there. Why do we have a higher rate of graduation in stable homes than they do? I'm sure we have all kinds of answers, don't we? Is their problem our problem? Let's keep looking. To this day, our nation has not lifted up, has not lived up to its goal of justice for all. Would anyone claim that a child trapped in the ghetto has equal access to quality education as his suburban counterpart? Would anyone claim that the teenage girl in the ghetto has the same chance of getting a summer job as a girl from an affluent family? Or that the ethnic young adult deprived of good education and job experience has an equal chance of making it in in the American job market? Poverty, you see, is much more than a lack of money. Poverty, listen, poverty is a lack of options. Who's that? We just walk back there. Oh, the place. Lack of options. For millions in our land, there is not justice. For them, equal opportunity is at best an elusive dream or at worst a cruel taunt. But this is not a book of despair. It is a book of hope. Though our nation has failed to live up to its own ideal of justice, I believe it hasn't lived up to its own ideal of justice, I believe it can. I believe that justice for all can become a reality in America. Government alone, though, however good, can never bring justice. I am convinced that the promise which our nation's laws alone have been powerless to fulfill can only be fulfilled in one way. Through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know what the title of his next chapter is? Evangelism is not enough. Yes, the gospel has this power, I know, for I have seen it bring hope to the hopeless. I have seen it empower the powerless to break the chains of oppression. I am persuaded that the church, as the steward of this gospel, holds the key to justice in our society. Either justice will come through us or it will not come at all. And we, we love the term justice, but we, we struggle with the definition of it. Yes? And we've seen that term batted around in our our struggles. As the months passed, I became more convinced uh, that a book was needed. I watched American evangelical churches mushroom in number while losing the battle against crime and immorality. The church is not the church was not transforming our society. Abortions increased, <laughs> divorces increased. The church has increased, but we we don't have any effect on culture. We preach the gospel. We we have we have conversion growth. People raise their hand to receive Christ, but the 
the horizon is inundated with, with the symptoms of sin. We haven't affected the culture. We just preached the gospel, man. The church was not transforming our society. The moral majority emerged and made a political statement, maybe a needed statement, yet one that ignored the plight of the disenfranchised. I began to wonder if conservative evangelicals were making the same grave error the liberals had made, seeking political solutions to moral problems. Now, mind you, reading this, is anyone struggling? Don't raise your hand. Just, I already know the answer, because I did. He wrote, Watergate, Koreagate, Abscam, skyrocketing crime rates, they all added to my sense of urgency. Christians need to act now. And so, this book, this book is an invitation, an invitation to join me in proclaiming and living out the gospel in a way that brings good news to the poor and liberty to the oppressed. He quotes Luke 4.18. I'm going to read just a couple more things and we'll get into the study. He said, during my teens, tragedy struck my family repeatedly. Mary's husband uh, killed her. Excuse me, I got that wrong. Mary's husband killed her in Louisiana, his sister. I never knew the details. Then Clyde got shot by a deputy marshal. He rode in my arms to the hospital to Jackson, 50 miles away. A few hours later, he died. Other members of my family were killed too, all within just a few years. Bitterness and hatred ate at me. That's when I left Mississippi. I was going to put all that behind me once and for all. Similar to what Tony said after he looked at his dad. In California, I found all kinds of new opportunities. I got a good job at Union Pacific Foundry in Southgate and soon was organizing the work of the men of the production line. When we joined the United States Steelworkers Union, although I was still a teen, I was chosen our department's union steward. Before long, I was in the thick of organizing a strike which won us several benefits, including a piece work provision that sometimes brought me as much as $100 a week. Not bad money for back then. I've never forgotten the power of, of unified action. In the spring of 57, the gospel of Jesus Christ confronted me. By then, I had been through the Korean War, so he's a veteran, gotten married to Vera May and started a family. My oldest son, Spencer, was going to the Weekly Good News Club at a little church just down the street from our house, and Spencer started coming home and saying verses before we began to eat, something we had never done before. And I watched Spencer. I saw something beautiful developing in him, something I knew nothing about. Never before had I seen Christianity really work in anyone's life. He was led to the Lord by Spencer. Spencer died. I'll read this last part right here. Michelle and I covered this the other night. I began to see that white and black churches alike had so molded their message to fit within cultural, racial, and religious traditions that they had robbed the gospel of its power. It was powerless to reach across racial, cultural, economic, and social barriers. It could not make a real difference in the community. I, like my fellow pastors, felt torn between my commitment to justice and my commitment to the church. On the one hand was the civil rights movement, now in full swing. It was attracting the loyalty of thousands of young people who loved the idea of freedom, but most of whom had, at best, only a shallow faith in Jesus Christ. They were more concerned about the movement than the things of the Lord. On the other side was evangelical church. Almost all evangelicals I knew opposed the movement. Evangelical church seemed to have no room for social justice. Evangelical church, with a few remarkable exceptions, remains the greatest stronghold of sin, of racism in America today. So you can see just the opening lines of that book, how you struggle, right? Maybe not? Yes? 
Let's take a look. But before we do, I want to ask you this question. Has anyone ever... Has anyone ever heard of the Devil's Dictionary? The Devil's Dictionary? It was written um, after the Battle of, the, of Shiloh um, by a man who had survived that battle in the Civil War. And he saw what man could do to man. And so he wrote the Devil's Dictionary, which is kind of a joke, um, as though these are, the, these are the terms defined by the devil. I want to read you one term um, for the definition of responsibility. So listen to it. This is the devil's definition of responsibility according to the author. A detachable burden easily shifted to the shoulders of God, fate, fortune, luck, or one's neighbor. So let's, let's do something real quick. You heard Tony's story. If he were up here in front of you as a recovering heroin addict or an adulterer, or a father of bastard children. Who's responsible for that? Him? Anyone else? Ooh, that's a hard one, isn't it? I'm sorry? Environment? Social what? Social culpability? The church? The individual? Tony? His father? If Tony were here and making excuses, let's just go from Tony's perspective. Who could he blame? His dad, right? He could blame his dad. He could blame, I mean, we can go through the whole list, right? He can blame um, genetics because he has a propensity towards addiction. Yeah? Um, he could blame society, societal ills, because there's no place for his children, so why bother to try to raise them or be a father to them because we don't have any schools to put them in? Yes? I mean, add to it. How about if we get into a pity party? Have you ever been on one of those? Yeah, been on a pity party? Hang on, Ted. Have you ever been on a pity party? And it's really going bad? And what do you do on that pity party? You cry and you go through the list of who's responsible for why you're so miserable. It's everybody else's fault. Victim mentality. So, and Ted, can I come back to you? Because it's, it's, it's in line here. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 18. Lord, I ask your blessing on the study of your word and my words are fruitless. Yours are living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. Speak to us now, Lord, we pray according to your riches in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? Let me define that for you. The parents ate ice cream, that's why the children's teeth are bad. So what's the proverb look like? Whose fault is it that my teeth are bad? My parents. Whose fault is it that I'm a drug addict? 
whose fault is it that I have all these struggles? So you blame your parents. As I live, says the Lord God, verse 3, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Uh, that's, this was the saying. You know why? They'd gone through lamentations in Jeremiah. They'd lost everything. They'd been put in exile. This, the, the nation was imploding. The, the capital was burned. The, the walls were destroyed. You want to talk about social unrest. That's what we're about to get into from chapter 3 all the way to 18. And, and they've got a great mantra in the midst of the social unrest, and that is blame somebody else. Right? You know what was interesting in my question? Nobody said it's my fault. Nobody. His problems aren't my fault. Society's issues are not my fault. Nobody, nobody looked internally, did we? We were, we were really good at defining whose fault it was. And when we look at our own faults, we always have this unbelievable ability to blame somebody else, don't we? Yes? No? That one hurt. Ooh. Hang in there. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. And here's what God says in verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. The wages of sin is what? And who sins? Everybody. And who's responsible for their sin? The person who sins. Drop down to verse 19. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, and he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? And not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? Can I ask you a question? Are the problems that have manifested themselves in the nation God's fault or our fault? Are the problems in the nation God's fault or the black community's fault or our fault together? 
how can I have a role in, I don't even go to Oxnard. Am I not my brother's keeper? What kind of a responsibility do I have to Oxnard? Well, it depends on how far the symptoms travel. Yes? The symptoms tend to elicit empathy because now it's in my hometown. Why would anyone, Emma, why would your parents go to Cyprus and live there and subject you to these Cypriots? Because they have a burden for the Cypriots. Why would Catherine Steele go to Cambodia to work with Cambodia refugees? Somewhere along the line, her heart was pierced. What's going to move you out of your complacency? A lot of people don't want to be moved out of their complacency. They would rather define the problems and stay within the walls of their safe world. That's not the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all. You know what the word all means? All. All men. Right? Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, back to the text. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? Verse 25, verse 26. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. I told you, you do this, you die. This is the world in which we live. Again, verse 27, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Would Tony or anyone else in this room who has suffered injustice be justified in doing evil because somebody hurt them? No. responsibility a detachable burden easily shifted to the shoulders of god fate fortune luck or one's neighbor i wasn't breastfed as a child whose fault is it when you sin what did king david say when he got caught in adultery for i have sinned against the lord own it. What did he say after that? If there be any wicked way in me, search me and know me, O God. You read books like this, you've got to search your heart. You step into that world, you've got to search your heart. Right? Let's go further. Verse 29. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair how many people love to blame god why did you have me born this way why'd you allow that to happen to me why 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 and what do we ask of the lord when we go through this not why but what what would you have me do what what would you have me repent of everything that happens to you must pass through the sovereign hand of god to prepare you and equip you for a greater ministry to a lost and fallen world have you been ministered to by Tony Logan, yes or no? He could, have been, he could have been a ministry or a minister, and he chose to be a minister because he looked at his own life and owned it. 
And God made him a minister so that he doesn't pour. Most of you didn't know any of that about him. And he is capable of serving in this fellowship because he examined his own life and saw all of the circumstances and said, not why, but what do you want to do with it, God? That's called responsibility before the Lord. Verse 30, God says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, not your father's ways, your mother's ways, your ways. Repent and turn from all your transgressions that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Well, I'd rather blame and die. Well, let's turn and live. This message, we're going to do a reconciliation service Sunday, the 24th, 4 p.m. at St. Paul's. I'm going to have something to share. This is what God gave me to share. Everybody wants to blame somebody else for the problem. God is saying, repent and turn to me and live. And what does he promise? I will give you life and life what? What's more abundant mean? With blessing. With blessing. Bob, you came tonight to hear someone play guitar. Yes? I mean, you come anyways, but... And you're proud of your son, right? And he is a remarkable young man. And you have a remarkable family, and as a, as a captain in the fire department for Ventura County Sheriff, uh, Fire Department, a remarkable citizen. That's a life of abundance. But we can easily destroy that abundance, right? By not doing what God commands us to do, right? So this is the picture that God gives to us. He says, Cast away from you all transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. What is a new heart and a new spirit? Greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. What happens is it says in Corinthians, when you receive Christ, you become a what? A new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become. So Tony's not up here as a heroin addict like his father. He's not up here as an incarcerated felon like his father. He's not up here as a... Um, a gigolo. He's up here as a minister. Faithfully married and the father of two children and a minister of a church. Because he's a new creation. The old is past. The new has come. God took all the past and put it together to make the mosaic that is Tony Logan that blesses you tonight. You see how that works? Verse 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Why are you fighting him? Why are you taking the devil's dictionary in relation to responsibility and blaming God and making responsibility a detachable burden easily shifted to the shoulders of God, to fate, fortune, luck, or your neighbor down the hill? He takes no pleasure in the one who dies. Turn and live. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 
Tony, when you were up here sharing, and you were talking, I looked up at the screen, it says, next song. And as you're talking about your dad and all the misery, it says, next song, Black Slide. That's it right there. I thought it was funny. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 9, if you would. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, and we're going to see that in chapters 3 through 17 of Ezekiel, terror of the Lord. It's going to be awful. Blood will rise. You're going to see unbelievable misery in those chapters. I'm warning you. The terror of the Lord. We persuade men, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ, what? It motivates us, it moves us, it compels us. What does it compel us to do? It compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. For all. That those who live should live no longer for what? Stop and look at me. What is ego? Self-preservation. We're Christians. We no longer live for ourselves, but for others. Here's what he says. We should no longer live for themselves, but for Jesus who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. I don't care what color of skin you have. I don't care about your, your paternal history. I don't care about your drug past. That's flesh. I don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Yet we know Christ thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has what? Reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That man who shared with you tonight, Tony Logan, has been used of the Lord to reconcile broken marriages, drug-addicted lives, churches that are broken and hurting because Tony doesn't sit around and blame God. Tony looks at his own life before the Lord. He doesn't take the devil's definition and shift the blame to the shoulders of God, fate, fortune, luck, or his neighbor who happens to be white. He's been reconciled to Jesus. He's a new creation. The past is gone. The future awaits. And God has entrusted to Tony Logan the ministry of reconciliation. We love to blame shift, don't we? Hello? Maybe, maybe I'm the only one. And if you wonder, we come from a family who's really gifted at it. When confronted with the very first sin in the garden, who did Eve blame? 
The serpent. Who did Adam blame? We, and we've been doing that ever since. It was the, he didn't just blame Eve. He said it was the woman you gave me. We got them both in there. That's man. And what did Jesus do? God shifted the blame to his blameless son. Romans 4, turn with me, we'll close with this. Actually, close with one more passage after this. Romans 4. Let's begin at verse 16. We're going to look at Abraham. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which are which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed. So they became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, God was able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. How did Abraham, stop for a minute, how did Abraham become righteous? He believed God. God would take care of the sin. God would cover the blame. Verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it would, was imputed to him, but for also us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. You know why you and I are righteous? Because God imputed his son's righteousness to us. And what did he do with our sin that deserved death? He put it on his son. And what was the consequences? An angry world beat the crud out of him. And he took it. He took it. God shifted the blame to his blameless son. He took the responsibility for our sin. Now it's time for us to take the responsibility for righteousness. He's imputed his righteousness to us, but he has created us unto good works that we would walk in those. Those are righteous works. Those are things that are right. Turn to 1 Timothy 2, please. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've read this many a time. Starting with verse 1. Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Stop for a minute, please look. We've already covered this. Isn't this what we want in our society? quiet and peaceful life and all godliness and reverence. I just want to worship the Lord. I want to live in a community where I don't have to worry about being shot. It doesn't matter what color I am. That's what everybody wants for themselves, their children, and their children's children. A righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. How do we work in such a way to have that future for our grandchildren? 
And, and look at verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul should have hated the Gentiles. He was a Jew. And he had a love for them and his brethren. What kind of a gospel does that? And causes you to leave the comfort of the temple where you've got a secure job to go into a world of Gentiles that you were raised to despise and hate. Why would Tony work with me? Why would Bishop Huggins give me the time of day? Why would I give either of them the time of day? Because it's Jesus. He breaks down walls. He restores communities. That's the power of the gospel. It's not just about... It's not just about someone raising their hand to receive Christ. It's about transforming a culture. That's the power of the gospel. It changes our life. I'll read this out of Zechariah. Chapter 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. I can tell you right now, God's angry with America. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me and I will return to you. At the reconciliation service, God showed me something that is of great importance. We're not coming together for political solution. We're coming together to repent. Repent and examine the problem. And you know what the problem is? Rob McCoy. And if you're in the room going, I agree, you don't get it. It's not Tony's dad, it's Rob McCoy. Micah Xavier Johnson killed five Dallas police officers and wounded a handful of others. Where was the church? Go into Oxnard. I drove James around to see the inner city. Hear some of the stories and let them move you. Because we're to be compelled. That's not my problem. You have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Yes, it is. Because you're the hands and the feet of the Lord. That's the power of the gospel. This is important, but it's not everything. When you do this in a call to Christ, you're justified. When you walk into the inner city, you're being sanctified. You're being set apart unto good works that God created beforehand that you would walk in those. That's what the church does. I'm not here to make you comfortable on the love boat. Right? I did not enjoy the entirety of Tuesday. I was challenged. And I'll tell you what, come Sunday, it's going to be even more difficult. And when I've been to Bishop Huggins' church and my daughter Molly's there with Micah, 
and a black woman comes up to my, my son-in-law and says, you, you and your daughter need to attend St. Paul's because that child needs to be raised in a black culture. First of all, I, I, <laughs> I don't know if Micah would know what to do. Secondly, that's my daughter and my grandson. And who are you? And I can be offended. But I've got to step into that world and then they'll step into mine. The Bible says a gift opens up the way for the giver. What started my relationship with Bishop Huggins, I did sit with him at a table, but I went to visit him and I went to his church and brought a jar of honey. And that's all it took for a lifelong friendship that's going to go until we both pass from this earth. Stretch yourself. We've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And the only thing that hinders you is the devil's definition of responsibility. It's society's fault. It's God's fault. It's fate's fault. I'm the one with the ministry of reconciliation. I would tend to think it's my fault. I got work to do. I want to make a difference in my lifetime. Does that make sense? We've got six minutes to answer questions. And add to the message anything that would be on your heart. And if you disagree, tell me. But this is the end. This is where God wants to bring us. Chapters 4 through 17, we are going to see ourselves in the equation. It's going to be ugly. But I wanted to get you to 18 because that's that's the solution. Because chapters... 5 through 17 is the problem. And when we go through those, I want you to look for yourself in the passage, and I'm going to look for myself. Own it. Own it. Amen?